might have missed 15 minutes worth of the message <laughs> for the recording. Um, and it says, the inhabitants of the land of Tamar, and that's an area that is in the Arabian desert. And it says, they brought water to him that was thirsty and prevented them with their bread, him that was fled. So they, they go, they per, were kind to them. They supplied people with their needs. And this is something, even to this day, the Bedouin tribes, even if they have an enemy show up around their, their tents during the evening hours, they will put them up. And they will protect them overnight, even if it's an enemy. They will be hospitable to them because of the desert's not a place to be out in the middle of the, middle of the night or in the scorching heat. And it is an idea of being hospitable. Now, once you got them out of your place, you, anything, anything would go back again. But there was that period of time where you were to hospitable, and they say they gave them water. They gave them food. They took care of them. That was their standard. And, and still is to this day, they have this standard of taking care of people at meal times and at, at time to go to sleep. And, uh, and again, even if it's an enemy, you know, it's almost like at certain points in time, the enemy themselves, they, they have a truce. And uh, they take care of each other. It says, for they have fled from the swords, from the drawn swords and from the bent bows and from the grievous war. So people were kind of invading their territory, running away from the enemies. And, uh, you know, they, they lived in a very peaceful area. And, you know, this is something that is hard for peaceful people to understand is battles and wars and, and, and things like that. The American Indians were very much like that when the Europeans came and, and pretty much gave them a hard time as time went on. Uh, originally, the, the original founders of America had come to evangelize and they were being kind to the Indians, but it didn't take long for other people to say, oh, here's, here's a great land to be you know, taken and, and lived in and exploited. And the Indians didn't really understand the attitude of the people. They loved their land. They didn't want to destroy their land. And here are people chopping down all the trees and, and you know, because they were wanting farmland. Now, there were farming Indians, but they usually didn't wipe out the forest to get their farms. Uh, but, you know, these people were very peaceful people. And they lived in this idea of let's take care of one another, let's be kind. And they're helping the people fleeing from war and just helping them that because in this description of it from the from the drawn sword, from the bent bows, and from the grievous war, the, the very harsh war. And this is what's going on in Israel at this particular time. We've got Assyria taking, you know, becoming a great power and taking the north. You've got Babylon rising up in power. And Babylon and Assyria are, are always at each other's throats, attacking one another. And you have a third power, Egypt, down in the, down in the bottom. It, it's, a, it's a declining empire, but it's still pretty strong. And then you have poor little Israel sitting in the middle of three strong powers. Uh, they would have probably been very happy if they didn't have to have three powers surrounding them. Because every time there was a battle, to get to the other guy, you went through Israel. Uh, it's kind of like if you know your Civil War history, Maryland and Virginia had almost all the battles because the, the front kept going back and forth between those two states. Occasionally get pushed a little further north or a little further south, but all the battles, you know, the big battles all happened right there because they were in the way. <laughs> you know, uh, if you were down in Atlanta or Savannah, you, you, you had, a, you know, toward the end of the war, they pushed down that far. Uh, if you lived up in 
Vermont, New Hampshire, you didn't have to worry about the war. It was not a problem. Nobody ever got, to, got that far north, and so you had no problems. And this is Israel in the middle. Two big nations, slightly to the north of them, so they're not too much there, but Egypt is always kind of putting their finger in the pot, and whoever paid them the most, they would join to their side, and then they would come charging up to help, and the other army would come down, and they would meet, usually somewhere in Israel, and have their battle. So this is, this is what he's seeing on here. The, the battle is, is harsh. And then this is very interesting in the prophecy in 16. For thus hath the Lord said unto them, Within a year, according to the year of the hireling, and all the glory of Kedar shall fell. He's saying year, and he says you can count on it, basically. That's what he's saying, the year of the hireling. If you hired yourself out for service, you were marking off your days. <laughs> you know, you, got, you, were, you, were, you were marking off the days to get to that last day. Okay, I, I hired myself out for a year, two years, three years, whatever it might be. And you're going, okay, it's... Each year, I heard myself out for three years. It's, it's two years, 364 days. Tomorrow, I'm gone. <laughs> okay, you've got, you've got me until midnight, and then I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> okay, and that's what he's saying. It is absolutely sure within the year that this Kedar, this, this province that was <coughs> out there, would be destroyed and conquered. And we see this all through the... Isaiah, Jeremiah, all these guys are talking because these guys are prophets toward the end of Israel and, Israel and Judah's time. They're going, the conquering's coming. Jeremiah was right there at the time that they were being conquered. And these guys, when they would make their prophecies, they were really popular with the kings when they told them the nation's going to be conquered. Now, yeah, I'm being very you know, facetious there. I'm not serious. You know, the kings did not like it. Uh, just as our country would not like somebody saying, okay, we're going to be conquered next year. Uh, it would be considered treason. And the kings considered it treason. These, these prophets kept finding themselves thrown into prison. Okay, Jeremiah, in his book, he's always talking about being thrown into prison, being thrown into a cistern. Uh, he, he did not have a good life. Matter of fact, his life was so bad that at one point he told God, I'm not talking for, for you anymore because I keep getting in trouble. And then he turns around and your words burned in my mouth and I could not help but speak. When God puts it on your heart to speak, you are going to speak. You are going to, to say it because God is going to make sure that you do. And this is, if he's called you to say something, you better get it out of the way because he'll keep making it until you eventually say it. And this is, Paul said, you know, he was called to be a preacher and he couldn't help but preach. And if he tried not to, God would force it out of him. And uh, I've been there. You know, when I walked away from God for two years, I, I was talking to everybody about Jesus and, and everything. It was crazy because I, I felt really bad because I hadn't been in church. I hadn't read my Bible for, you know, toward the end, almost two years. And here I am telling everybody they need God. Okay. You know, pretty much telling myself at the same time, obviously, but... You know, I was going, you know, so often I was witnessing to people all the time. I don't know if I was witnessing more or not, but I definitely remember it because I felt like such a hypocrite. Okay, here I'm telling everybody they need Jesus, they need to go to church, they need to get into the Bible, and I haven't been anywhere near a church for two years. Okay, now that was a very short time that I did that, but, you know, it was one of those things like, okay, God, <laughs> we're not going to go that route anymore. I'm going I'm to want to talk to, you, talk to people about you. And so we see here that it goes with any year, 
this, this is going to be conquered. And it says, And the residue of the archers and the mighty men of the children of Kedar shall be diminished, and the Lord, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. He goes, Even the remaining army, the, the, the most stalwart ones, will be taken. And, you know, there's always that group of people that will fight to the bitter end. You know, for every country, for every group, there's always somebody who will fight long after it's obvious that the war is over, long after there's no hope. Now, sometimes they end up winning, you know, or helping to win. The French resistance in World War II was one of those examples there. It was over. There was no France. There was nothing. And yet they made life miserable for the, for the Germans all the time. They just kept harassing them. You know, little, little harassment here, a little harassment there. They kept getting conquered and, and killed, but you know, they just kept coming up and saying, and God says, even the residue, even the ones that want to fight are going to go. And when Judah fell, that's exactly what happened. When Babylon conquered, Babylon had this great big habit of saying, okay, we're going to move all the inhabitants of the land someplace else. So when they conquered Israel, they left the poorest of the poor in Israel. They took the royalty and, the, the, and everybody moved them to Babylon. And then they took all the middle class and moved them all over the Babylonian Empire. Now the Babylonian Empire went from Egypt up into the southeastern part of Europe all the way out to India. And they just spread the, they spread the Jews everywhere, which is why there's Jewish settlements all over the world. Is mostly Babylon was the reason for it. They spread those people out. And when they were released to go back to Israel, many of the Jewish people said after 70 years, hey, we've got our businesses here. We're, we've got our nice little group here. We've got our synagogue. We don't want to go, we don't want to go back home. And it was hard. They did not, they, many of them, when Ezra and Nehemiah were trying to reestablish the kingdom, they had trouble getting a lot of the people to come back to Israel. And this is why at this point in time, God is moving on the hearts of so many of the Jewish people to return to Israel now. It's pretty amazing. If you get to know many Jews, they all at least want to visit Jerusalem. And many of them are saying, I'd like to go live there. And I think that's going to keep intensifying because that's what God said it's going to do. He says he's going to call his people home. And uh, we're going to see that, as, especially as pressure comes against Israel. Right now, anti-Semitism is growing significantly all around the world. In Europe, it's really bad. Anti-Semitism, hatred of Jews. <laughs> okay, I saw, saw the question and look on that. Uh, is, uh, Europe is getting really bad with it. It's growing in America, and it's growing around the world. And as it, as it gains momentum, more and more Jews are going to say, I've had enough. I'm going to go. I'm going to go home. <laughs> I'm going to go to the land where they, where I'm supposed to be living, where they're supposed to be okay with me. <coughs> and uh, God is going to call them. He's going to call them back because He wants His people together at the last days. And as we see more and more of that, it's one more sign that we're toward, that we're headed toward the end days. And we've got all kinds of signs out there. Our world is getting evil. As, a, as an entirety of the world. In the past, they've had various nations that would get evil and areas that would get evil, but there were always some place where God was moving and standing strong. 
And right now, I'm not seeing any place that's really standing up for God around the world. We really are becoming one big world. And our people in education and our leaders are all pushing for this idea that there shouldn't be nations. And we see it. If you watch the news, you know, we got this big migrant caravan coming up from the south. And there's a lot of people on the news that are saying, well, what's the big deal? It's just a, you know, they're part of the human race. Just let them in. Well, if that's true, then we shouldn't have any countries, which is what they're saying. All right? And God established the countries. Now remember, where did, where did all these countries and languages and everything come from? At the Tower of Babel, they were building this great big tower, and God destroyed the tower, and he said, we're going to disperse the people because together they can do whatever they want. So he confused their languages so they couldn't talk to each other, drove them all over the world like they were supposed to go in the first place. So he says, this is the problem. We, we're going to make it so they can't communicate. We're going to build nations. And where are we at now? We've broken the communication barrier, barrier pretty much. I mean, yeah, individuals may not be able to talk, but nations now can talk to each other. If you have a smartphone, you can get translation apps that will, some of them are so smart that they will translate the actual verbal communication, but at the very least you type in your message and hit translate and you can, they can read their language and they can do the same thing on, on your phone or their phone and you can read your language. We've overcome the problem that the Tower of Babel put into place. And we're seeing one world government starting to become together. That was what Nimrod was building up. He was in charge of the Babylonian Empire of that day building the Tower of Babel. And he had one world government. All right, And God dispersed the people. We're now getting past that. Satanists go, OK, we're, we're now going to have one world government, just as it says in, in the Bible. And we can all communicate again. So we're back. You know, it's amazing how things just go in a great big cycle. We're back to Babel. And Babel was the roots of all false religions go back to Babel. And the Babylonian religion, Mystery Babylon, it's called all through the scriptures. When you read, when you read Mystery Babylon or the Whore of Babylon, you're, you, you're, they're talking about all of the false religions and gods and, and everything that are out there. And all false religion has its roots in Mystery Babylon's religion. The idea of working to earn your salvation, the idea of, of having many gods. Because they had a pantheon of gods, 36 gods in their pantheon. And they abused the astronomy that God put out in the stars, and they, they changed it and made it into astrology and made it into a false, false thing. Why did God put the stars in Genesis? He told us he put the stars up to be signs to what's coming. I mean, I really believe, and it's been taught, that he put the entire gospel message in the stars, <coughs> in the original interpretation of the constellations. Satan has counterfeited it. Okay? And one thing about it is there has to be something real for a counterfeit. Satan never creates. There, there would be nobody in his right mind would counterfeit a $4 bill. Why would you not counterfeit a $4 bill? Because there's no such thing as a $4 bill. Here, I want change for my $4 bill. What are you saying? You know, there's no such thing. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to counterfeit something that's, or even create something that's not, not real. Satan counterfeits. He does not make anything real. 
So he takes what God has created and he alters it. God created the world in seven days and we see all these other things that are up there, the evolution idea and, and that's being promoted. Satan has a counterfeit. Close enough to the real to, to have some validity, but, but all in there to be false. And so we see here, he says, they're going to fall. And God says, I'm going to keep them. I'm going to keep my people. God will keep his people. When God sent the flood in Noah's day, he protected Noah and his family. Now, we know in the New Testament it says that Noah preached to the people, come into the ark, come into the ark, God's going to destroy. For 120 years, he's building an ark and preaching to the people. And when it's time for the flood, his family and the animals get in. Not a single soul. You want to talk about a hard ministry that was. Preach for 120 years and get nobody. Nobody. You know, I'm not even sure his family believed, but dad said get in the boat, so we're getting in the boat. Okay. You know, it doesn't tell us whether they believed or not. All we know is they got on the boat. And they were covered and protected because, of, because they got on the boat. But the boat was big enough for lots of people to get in. If they were ready to repent and turn from their sins, they could have gotten in the ark. Jesus died on the cross so that we can go be protected and enter into heaven. And just before the tribulation period, he's going to take his church home. You know, because we're not going to have to go through the harshness of the tribulation period. The tribulation period is something that the world has never seen is how it's described by the scriptures. And what little we're told about it is awful. Okay? In the book of Revelation, if you just take what it lists as the people dying... 66% of the population of the world dies. Right? Two out of every three people will die during the tribulation period. That is a horrific number to think about. The tribulation period is seven years. Yeah. And, you know, let's see, we've got uh, nine people in this room, so three people would be left in this room at, at the end of the tribulation period. You know, not, not, not a cheery sight at all. And God says, I'm taking my church out. I'm protecting my church from that horrendous. Now, his spirit will still move. He will still, people will still come to him. But they're going to pay with their life. It's going to be a hard time to be alive. They're not going to have to suffer some of the pain and the anguish of, on some of these things. God says he put a mark on them that they're not going to be touched by some of the diseases, but they're going to be beheaded. They're going to be, be killed. They're going to be tortured. And you know, we won't even go into the types of tortures that would go out there because if you've read anything like Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know that man is, man is capable of horrendous activities against man. And Satan is going to be the direct leader of all of this. So you can imagine he'll find ways to torture people that are not even you know, fathomable by us. And... It'll be a very horrific time. And I've heard people go, well, you know, I'll just get through the tribulation. Well, good luck. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with the tribulation. I don't want to be anywhere near it. And I know that God would give me the grace. If I had to go through it, he'd give me the grace to, but I don't want to be there. And I won't be there because I have made him my Lord and Savior. And so we see here this whole thing of God saying, there's going to be a move on here. All right, chapter 22, verse 1. 
don't know how far we're going to get in this one. The burden of the valley of the vision. What ails you now that you are wholly gone up to the housetops? You that are full of stirs and tumultuous city, a joy, joyous city, your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that are found in you are bound together, which have fled from far. Therefore, said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. For it is the day of trouble and the treading down and the perplexity by the Lord God of the host of the valley of the visions, breaking down the walls and the crying of the mountains. And Elam bare the quiver with chariots of men and, and horsemen and curd uncovered the shield. And it shall come to pass that their choicest valleys shall be full of chariots and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. All right. This chapter is broken up into two major prophecies. The first one, the burden of the, of the Valley of Vision, is specifically against Jerusalem, but overall against Israel. And the second part is a vision against uh, a person named uh, uh, Shebna, and he is a royal, something in the royal court of Hezekiah. Uh, that's what I know about him. <laughs> but it starts out, the burden of the valley of vision, what ails you now that you are wholly gone up to the housetops. Okay, what, what, what's your problem now, basically, is what he's saying. What ails you now? What's your problem? <laughs> okay, and he goes, you're, you're all wholly gone up to the housetops. Now, for us in our day, don't think of the housetops as being these big pointy things. The housetops that they're talking about were flat roofs with parapets around them. Uh, they were a place of last resort to guard your house, because uh, usually there was only one set of stairs up, up to the top of it. Uh, and they were a place of comfort. You would, uh, when, you, when you would be able to, you, they would treat it kind of like their living room. You know, you went up in the cool of the night, there'd be lounge chairs up there. Sometimes you'd even have garden boxes and everything, and you'd build your garden up there. They were just a place to, kind of like we would say, our backyard. And he says, this is, this is your, your comfort. And, but it was also a place of last resort defense. Okay, I can get up on that mile, up here, there's only one stair, I can defend my house from here. All right? Um, you would also usually have your, your bath up there and everything, you know, because number, your houses were even, even higher than you pretty much, so you really didn't have problems on it. And, and in your lower part of your house in those days, a lot of times when it got cold, you'd bring your animals, your, your flock, into, into your, your, your ground floor room. And at that time, it was better to sleep up on the, <laughs> up on the, up on the rooftop. Uh, but uh, he says, you know, hey, what's your problem? Why, why are you all hiding up on the rooftops? All right. And it says, you are full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous, joyous city. This kind of contradiction in terms. You are full of stirs, which is clamor and noise. You're full of noise. And your city is a tumultuous, noisy city. And then it goes in a joyous city. Now, I'm not quite sure how you can have a noisy, 
tumultuous city and still have joy. But having said that, I can also, from different people that, I, that I've known that are, you know, aren't godly people, there's some people that seem to take pleasure when everything's going bad around them. You know, I've known people that they're not happy unless everybody else is unhappy. And uh, you know, they're just drama, drama queens and drama kings. You know, every, every, I've had people that work for me like that. Everything's going along smooth, no problems, and they show up. <laughs> okay? And it's not that they even did something bad half the time, but it's just little comment here, little comment there, little, little stir the pot here, little stir the pot here, and before long, everybody's on edge. This is, I think, what he's describing. You're noisy. In your heart, there's no peace. You're noisy. And because you're noisy, you know, misery loves company attitude. You know, if, I, if I'm not happy, then I'm going to make sure nobody else is happy. You know, the adage of mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, you know, that, kind of, that kind of deal. But it says, you've got a, you're, full of, you're full of noise and troubles. The city's full of troubles. And there's a joyfulness about it. Everybody's happy that everybody else is unhappy, I guess. You know, maybe they're unhappier more than I am. I don't know. I, I, I've been walking with God too long to, to understand this. I, I see it, and I know people who do it, but that's not the way I am. I want to bring peace into situations, and at the very least, I want to stay peaceful with God. But if you go to a big party, fleshy party, then there is a lot of noise, a lot of Everybody's having fun? Everybody's having fun, but it would be described like that. And that's what I'm saying. I, I I comprehend what it's saying. You better if you're drunk. You're better if you're drunk. Okay. I'll take your word for that one. Easier to get through. Easier to get through. Okay. You don't remember it afterwards. Is that what you're saying? That's when somebody goes, I had a lot of fun last night. What would you do? I don't know. And sin always has consequences. Always. And the harder and deeper the sin, the deeper and harder the consequences. So I understand that, and you know, you're able to understand this verse in a way that I don't understand this verse. I mean, you know, to me it just sounds, it sounds strange, but it's in the Bible, so I'm going to believe that it's real and it's true, and then I hear somebody that says, yeah, we've been, we've been there. We know exactly what this is, verse is talking about. It, there's noise, there's excitement. Everybody's joyful in the moment. Until the morning. Until the morning. It goes on and says, your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. This is kind of a, this is, what kind of party were they having at this point? Uh, but I, as I'm thinking something like this, I'm thinking more in terms of somebody who's gotten so drunk that they're dying, they've overdosed on their, their drugs, violence that pops up in the cities uh, because of all the sin that's going on. He says, you're losing more people in your city than, than, if, than you would have in a battle. And that's what's happening in our world today. You know, especially here in America where we don't have any wars going on and, and we lose people in the cities and we added up our entire population that dies in, of crimes and ODs and, and all of this, we'd probably have the equivalence of a pretty major battle going on because there is a battle going on. A battle between good and evil is going on and Satan is winning many souls into hell because of all the evil that's going on. And it's a very sad thing, but it is true. This is what he's saying. You, know, you guys are losing You guys are losing all kinds of people. They're dying, but they're not dying from the sword. They're not dying from battle. 
they're just dying from enjoying themselves to death. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we see a lot of that. It's in the news all the time. Some celebrity OD'd or you know, somebody got behind the wheel of the car and, and crashed because they were too drunk or too, too stoned to, to know what they were doing. And usually, unfortunately, when those things happen, they take a lot of, quote unquote, innocent lives with them. Evil has a consequence. And as you said, a lot of times people think they're having fun when they're in the middle of their evil. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't do it. You know, if, if you didn't have some sense of fun in the action of it, you wouldn't do it. But there's some thrill to it, obviously. I mean, the sins I commit, there's a thrill, there's a thrill, there's an enjoyment to it. Uh, some sins I can't even comprehend doing, they just make no sense to me at all, but, uh, but that's because I've been saved as long as I've been saved, and they just, like, okay, no, I don't even want to, I don't want to experience that quote-unquote fun. But, you know, I have plenty of other areas that I commit to sins, and some of them I do willfully because they're still, in my mind, fun. I don't really like the consequence thereafter, but they're, they're fun in the moment. And if it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. Anybody who says that sin has no fun in it is, is lying. Okay, because if it wasn't fun at all, we would never do it. Now, we can get addicted to the sin. Okay, all sin has an addictive quality to it. Some more addictive than others. Alcohol and drugs have a physical addiction as well as an emotional addiction. But all sin has an addictive quality to it. And when I say that, it means that you need more of it to get the same thrill that you used to have. And this is why even in sexual sins, they, you, know, you start out with just uh, one person maybe. And then it's like, well, I can't do this. I've got to find multiple partners, maybe multiple at the same time. And then, well, I've got to experiment in homosexuality or, or all these other ways because the thrill has gone. The person who steals, you know, they start out stealing because, well, I just needed a, I needed a meal or I needed, some, you know, I needed something. And then they just start doing it because it's becoming a habit and gets bigger and bigger. And usually it gets bigger and bigger until they finally get caught <laughs> because they do something just too outrageous and too big. But this is the way sin is. Sin always takes us deeper than we meant to go. And it becomes a place where there's an addictive quality to it where I just have to do it. And that's when we get into this whole idea of this psychological descriptions. You're not a thief anymore. You're a kleptomaniac. You just can't help yourself but stealing. Okay? And so what they're doing is they're taking it out of the sin and make it in a sickness. And that's, that's bad. But there is an idea that they're so addicted to it that they just do it. You get the person who's a pathological liar. They've just lied so much that they're incapable of telling the truth. And I'm not going to say in, totally incapable, but their first process is, just got to lie. Sure. You know, well, well, what were you doing yesterday? Well, I wasn't doing anything bad, but they make a great big story about it, you know, just because they just can't tell you what they were doing. Uh, you know, they get this whole addictive nature into them. And sin has an addictive quality. And this is why we as Christians have to be careful that we don't judge the individual who's sinning. Because they may end up being so addicted to it they can't help themselves without the grace of God and the changing of God in their life. And it doesn't mean that we're going to say, oh, you're okay. But it's going to be, no, you are okay. The sin you're doing 
is bad. And we've talked about this at various times. The world cannot separate the sin from the sinner. It's just incapable. It's not, you know, you, you aren't a person who steals. You are a thief. You know, you aren't a person that, you know, whatever it might be, you are what you do wrong. And they cannot separate the two. Whereas from the biblical perspective, we know there's a person and we know there's what they do. And God says he loves the person greatly and he hates the sin that they're doing. They're, yeah, well, they're his, his. I'm not, child of God, I've maybe taken a little too far, but they are his. He's created everybody. They're his, they're his. His children are those who've accepted Jesus Christ. Okay, just to clarify that point. Uh, because the world talks to everybody, you know, and when you start going that way, then everybody goes to heaven because, you know, God would never send his children to hell. So you want to be careful with the way that, because that's used in the world totally different. And I know you didn't mean it that way, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, huh? Yeah. We're his children because we're, we're in Christ, or those of us that are in Christ are his children. If you're not in Christ, you're not one of his children. You are his. You're his creation. You are his, but you're not his child. And that's why I picture God with tears running down his face as he sends people to hell, which is what they've asked for by rejecting Jesus Christ. Because he's not going to want to get rid of, you know, he... he we're his. Okay. Uh, and, and you choose hell, and it's like, okay, I wanted you. I paid the price for you. Jesus died for you so that you could spend eternity with me, and you chose not to spend eternity with me. And I love you so much, I sent my son to die for you, but I'm going to give you what you wanted eternal separation from me. And then I really do picture God crying at the white throne judgment. Even though, they're going to, even though he knows that they're going to deserve it and knows that that's what they, you know, what they have chosen, it's still going to break his heart <coughs> to, to destroy, you know, to send his creation to eternal punishment. And we've got to understand, hell is an awful place. Just being separated from God alone would be awful. You know, now, the lost world doesn't understand that because they don't, they don't recognize God in all, the, in all that's going on. Those of us who are Christians, we know what it means to be in love with God and see God. But God is intricately involved even in the lost person's life. He holds their very being together. And they, just the loss of God is going to be awful. And love and goodness and kindness and, and gentleness. Add to that that it says that in hell, your conscience is going to bother you for eternity. Now, if you've ever been in a place where your conscience bothers you, imagine never being able to get rid of that guilty conscience for all of eternity. The last thing God will show you at the white throne will be every time you rejected Jesus Christ. And you get to remember that for eternity. I'm here in this awful place because I chose to be here. And he shows you every time that you rejected Jesus. Add to that the pain and the fire and the, and the, the never, never being satisfied and being thirsty as a, as a man in, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man was. He was thirsty so much that he just wanted a drop of water. Just, just give me a drop of water. You know, I'm not even asking for a cup of water. That's quite a bit of thirst. I've never been that thirsty. I've been thirsty, but never quite that thirsty. Okay, hell is an awful punishment 
for eternity. But it's what people have chosen, and God's going to say, this is what you wanted, you, you've got it. And he says, no man is without excuse. Every single person that's walked this world has been shown, number one, that they're a sinner. Okay, we all have a conscience. Now, sometimes we can sear our conscience and kind of push it off to the back burner, but every single person has a time when their conscience worked and they felt bad about what they were doing. They knew it was wrong. Now, you can keep doing it. You know, the first time you steal something, you know what's wrong, and you can keep stealing until eventually you don't really think of it as being wrong anymore. It's just your way of life, and, you know, and you can even make an excuse. That person has more than they need. I'm just helping, helping alleviate their, their, their burden of excess, you know, and I'm just taking some of their burden off of them. You know, we could, they can try to justify it, and they can really get to a place where they see with their conscience and no longer see it as, as, as bad. But deep down, they still know it's bad. Even when your conscience is seared, you know that it's not right. And this is what he's talking about, this whole idea that all this stuff is going on. All right. We're going to end here. We'll probably review, we'll probably review one and two next week because it lays, in, lays the groundwork for the rest of it. All right, let's go and pray. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to look at you. Lord, help us to learn to stand firm in, with you and to take our joy and pleasure in, with you. Help us to look to you for all our good and be satisfied in all that you do and learn contentment. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.